Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Every week, we come together with the intention of strengthening your faith and uh, sharing uh, from different topics related to theology, related to church history, to ministry leadership. And uh, our hope is always that you walk away uh, better prepared as a minister and a student of God's Word. Now, if you were with us last time, uh, you know that we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Leighton Flowers, Director of Evangelism for Texas Baptist and Professor at Trinity Theological Seminary. And he is also, uh, among all the other things, the host of Soteriology 101 which is a podcast devoted to addressing issues of salvation and the doctrine of salvation, but in light of a world that is, uh, is, you know, increasingly Calvinistic in its theology. So we recently had Leighton on the, the show to discuss the Calvinist hermeneutic. That's what we spent a lot of time with in the last episode. And if you haven't listened to that, we, we highly recommend go back and listen to that episode. Check that out. There's a lot of really rich and, and good things that he has to say there. But today, we're going to continue our conversation by taking more uh, time to uh, devote to the inner workings of Calvinist theology and TULIP itself. And so with all of that said, I want to welcome Leighton back onto the show. Thank you so much for being here, man. It's my honor. Thanks for having me. Let's just start by talking about, you know, Calvinism in our world today. It does seem like, uh, as you know, I'm 40 now, that throughout my life, Calvinism has become increasingly popular. When I I was young, I I wasn't even familiar with the word. I hadn't really, you know, in my 20s, my friends started talking about it. It became more and more prevalent to hear about it. Mm -hmm. But what do you think the, the, the root source is or the reason why Calvinism has, over the last 30 or 40 years, really began to increase in popularity uh, as a theology and a, and a philosophy. You know, I've been asked that question before, and I'm sure there's a lot of nuanced ways that you could look at how the history of something happens. I, I do know over the last about 500 years, uh, Calvinism has resurged about four different times. Uh, and it becomes popular, and then it dies back out. Uh, usually, the reason it dies back out, according to the studies of it is that it kind of eats its own. It becomes hyper in its tendencies and people begin to see its its logical inconsistencies and it and it dies back out. And I always jokingly uh, you know, tease my Calvinist friends that well, why do you suppose that happens? Either God ordains uh, it to rise up and die back out, or maybe it's just not a logically tenable way of living life and it's not you know theologically sound. Uh, and of course, the latter is is what I believe is the reason it has surged back up and dies back out every time is because it, it's not a tenable way of living life. It's not practical, mm-hmm. uh, and and more importantly, I don't believe it's theologically uh, accurate according to the the teaching of Scripture. Uh, but that's the debate, and of course, that's where we have our our sparring with our Calvinist friends over mm-hmm. that particular issue. But I, at least for me, um, you know, I, I I'm 48 years old, and so in in all my generation in the 90s, um, you know, there's the 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 kind of the Joe Osteen types, you know, his father before him, Osteens, um, the even the Rick Warrens, which I would not put them on the same category. They're they're very different. Um, Bill Hybels, um, right. seeker-sensitive kind of movement is happening. Uh, and so there's a lot of emphasis on reaching more people and growing a church. 
And I'm not trying to throw all of that under the bus because I actually think there's some really healthy, good things about some of that, that, that mm-hmm. the church should be aware of the needs of the lost. Um, and, and I, and I think Rick Warren has done some good things. And so I'm not throwing Rick Warren under the bus sure. here, but that kind of mindset, uh, of the seeker sensitive movement, um, led a lot of people like myself that were looking for something a lot more theologically robust, somebody right. who's doing not topical, but more expositional type of preaching, uh, the, the, the thinkers, the theologians, and what tended to happen, I think, in the 90s, early 2000s, is that a lot of the deeper, robust teachers like John MacArthur, for example, R.C. Sproul, later uh, the popularity of John Piper, all mm-hmm. of these guys happen to be more Calvinistic-leaning, though all three of those people are from different denominations and different groups and different ways of thinking. The one thing they all had in common was more of a Calvinistic sociology. And so in the mind of a lot of us, I think growing up, it was kind of this dichotomy set up before us that either you're the health, wealth, chicken soup for the soul, pop psychology of the Kenneth Copelands and the Osteens of the world, that it's kind of a surface level stuff, or you're you're a thinker and mm. you're in depth and you're exegetical and you have robust sound theology. And that happened to be more Calvinistic in its, its approach. And about that time in the mid nineties, the internet hits and, and Calvinists have, have kind of bonded together. It's called together for the gospel. And so they're reaching across Baptist and denominational and even, uh, charismatic lines to draw in mm-hmm. people, all who hold to this central Calvinistic type of sociology that they're willing to bind together to, to unite and to really teach what they, they call these doctrines of grace to make sure people really understand this Calvinistic sociology all while the internet's hitting and guess what? Young people don't go to libraries and pick up actual books right. hardly anymore. They, when right. they want to know something, they, they Google it or they YouTube it. And the Calvinists have been really good at getting their message out there and making sure everybody knows what it is they believe and why they believe it. And in the reverse, the other side hasn't said much, much about it. And when they do say things about it, it's usually in a scholarly journal that nobody sees or something mm-hmm. of that nature. It's, it's not, they've not done a very good job like the Calvinists have of popularizing their material. And so I think what we've seen over the years is just a huge surging of what has been popularly called the young, restless and reformed. This right. just surging of, of new neo-Calvinists that mm-hmm. um, hold to a, a, a form and brand of Calvinism that's different than, uh, than many throughout history, in fact. When, when, you know, when you assess what you see taking place or maybe even just the logical conclusions of uh, a Calvinistic soteriology, what do you think or what ways do you think that impacts the Christian experience? How, how, does, that, how does that affect the outworking of one's, one's faith ultimately? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'll speak from my own testimony and I, I won't just give bad. I'll give good and bad. I think some of the good sides of it is that there's a real focus upon what God desires versus what man desires. So it's a, a focus on the glory of God and the sovereignty of God and what are God's purposes and his plans and that God's at work around us. Um, the whole idea that things aren't just happening by happenstance or accident. God's bringing about his plan and his purpose, which, by the way, are all still views that I hold dear. Uh, those, aren't, those aren't views that I had, uh, abandoned right. when, I, when I left Calvinism. 
but Calvinism emphasized those to uh, to somebody who hadn't been taught those things very well mm-hmm. or at least understood those things very well earlier in life. And so there's some positive aspects of that. Um, on the negative side of it is some of the more fatalistic or deterministic ways of thinking that sometimes Calvinists even try themselves to dissuade their uh, followers from from uh, becoming too fatalistic or deterministic in their mindset. Um, and and you've, you've heard many Calvinists kind of speak out against becoming fatalistic because a, a deterministic kind of philosophy that, that is really the underpinning of Calvinism can lead people to really bad conclusions. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, one example that, that might be when I fell into sin, then if all, all things have been decreed by God, all things have been brought to pass by his sovereign decree, his plan, then that would include my besetting sins um, and my temptations and my, my problems. And I was actually counseled at one time when I went to a, a mentor who was Calvinistic. You know, I'm dealing with this struggle. I'm dealing with these issues. I can't seem to uh, stop the the sin that I'm doing. You know, the whole Romans 7, I want to do what's right, but I keep right. finding myself doing what's wrong, which is, you know, uh, every every uh, human's battle at one point in life is mm-hmm. struggling with sin and trying to overcome temptations, even as a Christian. Uh, and and was, was counseled to say, you know, God has a purpose in that. He, he actually can use that to keep you humble. Um, and that's a part of his his plan for you. Man, and so, how did that make you feel? I mean, does that entrench you even? I think the danger of that is it could entrench you even more greatly. It, like it's almost like the whole business of of do we do we send despite God's grace? Well, God God forbid. It like kind of does away with that way of thinking. Well, like if this is somehow determined by God, well, it's not really God forbid, is it? It's it's God decreed, and and now. Do am I stuck in this place? I mean, that's kind of a confusing. Exactly. Yeah, it, it can be devastating. I know, you, I know your background is in counseling, and you could. And my wife is is the same. She's a counselor, and and she's talked about this with some of her clients who tend to continually blame God for whatever circumstance they're in, and he, she has to bring them back. Well, that was your choice to do that. Don't don't blame mm-hmm. that on God. You know that that you did that, um, and and that's kind of what again the again a lot of Calvinists would say, don't do this, don't do this, don't think that way. But the natural outflow of the system kind of leads to that way of thinking that I am what I am because God decreed what I am. And therefore, if I'm caught in an addiction or into sin, then I can ultimately rest on the fact that, well, God's in control. God's the one who's brought this a pass for his own glory and for my my ultimate good. And in any addict knows that the one thing you're looking for is a good excuse for addiction. I mean, you're looking mm-hmm. for... Uh, a, 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 you know, justification for why you're doing what you're doing, and what better justification than well, God decreed for me to be this way, uh, for His right. glory and and for my good, no less, because He's going to bring about my humility through this this addiction. And the truth is, as you well know, one of the first steps to overcoming addiction is to to own it, and and not to blame it on anybody else. Uh, you know, that's why they have in the Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, you say, my name is so-and-so and I am an alcoholic. Why? Because you have to, you have to own you have what to own you it, are. Yeah. You have to own it. And so I think that's a part of it is when you, uh, when you own your stuff, what you're saying, I'm responsible for it. In other words, I could have done otherwise. I should have done otherwise. Whereas the whole Calvinistic system is basically saying you couldn't have done otherwise. It doesn't affirm mm-hmm. libertarian freedom of the will under the philosophical underpinning of Calvinistic mm-hmm. determinism. You you couldn't have done otherwise. You were decreed to do what you do. All things are decreed by God on Calvinism. And therefore, if you chose that sin, you chose it ultimately 
because God decreed that you would choose that sin. And that can be devastating to healing. It can, it can, and that doesn't always lead to devastation. Uh, some Calvinists are able to kind of walk within that cognitive dissonance of, of the, the system without uh, Spurgeon going style. away. Right, yeah, and, and <laughs> some people are able to, to pull that off. But others are not. Uh, and I, right. I was one of those that really struggled. And I know uh, because I've shared that testimony so many times, I've had uh, countless numbers of either Calvinist mm. or former Calvinists confess to me that they've had the same struggle uh, in one way or another of, of the, the, the potential devastating impact of thinking fatalistically about God's decree in such a way that it affects how you deal with the sin in your life. Right. And now you, you so much of your life is devoted to um, creating uh, opportunity for believers to evangelize and to share the gospel. Um, how, how do these fatalistic views spill over into the work of evangelism and, and apologetic? Uh, you made reference to this earlier, but I'd like to hear more thoughts on that. Sure. Um, and again, not all Calvinists are the same um, right. because of the way some Calvinists act. Sometimes, sometimes Calvinists do things that I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't make logical sense to me as to why they are so uh, passionate about apologetics. But I know some Calvinists who are passionate apologists, and they will argue all day and all night with an atheist and try to convince them to to, to come to faith. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't make logical sense to me as to why they would mm -hmm. do that, given their belief about pre faith regeneration and unconditional election. Because it seems to me that you could just preach the gospel, and if they're elect, they're going to believe it. If they're not, they're not. So move along. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so the whole concept of apologetics, um, defending the faith and, and helping people to know good reasons why we believe what we believe uh, to do as Paul did in Acts chapter 28, where he spends all day long trying to persuade them of the truth of who Christ is. He mm -hmm. was an apologist. That's what he was doing. Um, and that that mindset of trying to persuade others is the mindset, I think, that's more consistent with our sociological worldview than it is with a Calvinist worldview. But again, like I said, there are some, uh, I think, maybe logically inconsistent Calvinists who are very evangelistic and very mm -hmm. much uh, passionate about apologetics. I just don't think it fits their worldview very well, which is one of the reasons that throughout history, Calvinists have had a tendency among some groups of Calvinists to become anti-evangelistic or hyper in their, in their outflow of their Calvinism. And, and, and logically, it makes sense. I mean, if God's going to save who he's going to save, regardless of whether I'm involved or not, then I'm not going to be involved. And right. and and so it really, I don't need to be that involved. And if I am involved, it's maybe at a lesser level because, honestly, I don't know that I have that much real influence over whether somebody comes to faith or not, given the fact that God has predetermined or predestined whether they're going to be regenerated yeah. through a unilateral work of, of irresistible grace. And, uh, you know, we did a, an uh, episode a while back with a friend of mine, James Fife, uh, who was a, a missionary, and we talked about the modern missions movement and how early on the, the modern mission guys, you know, the William Carey's, faced severe pushback, uh, just suggesting that they needed to get on boats and go to places where the lost were. And you can't help but think that in, in Europe at that time, there was, there was that heavy kind of Anglican Episcopalian influence even among the Baptists, it, they, they couldn't see uh, their need to live out the Great Commission. And you can't help but think that some of that Reformed theology was impacting their ability to understand the, the value of, of sending our best and brightest across the world to preach the gospel to the lost. 
you know, you can't help but, but see that there was an, a, a cultural effect there. Right. And again, in defense of, of Calvinist, I, I think of John Piper and the work he does for Desiring God. It's very evangelistic, um, mm-hmm. very missions minded. I know this because I get calls from all over the world because of the podcast about Calvinism, quote unquote, infiltrating or affecting uh, their churches because Calvinists have been really good at planting new churches and new areas and going to, to different places. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, I was a Calvinist for, for 10 years, and I, I was a missionary at the time. I, was, I did evangelism work at the time. Um, and in some ways say, well, there's just a cognitive dissonance there is the reason you're doing those things. And you're doing it because God commanded you to do it. And you might be the means that God has chosen uh, to bring some of his elect to salvation. And these kinds of things were, were used as oftentimes motivators um, and, and so again, different Calvinists have different reactions to these, these doctrines, but you can't ignore the fact that throughout history, as we've already mentioned, uh, Calvinism tends to eat its own and become more and more the frozen chosen, the kind of inward focused. And eventually the system dies out because of the fact that it's not a practical or tenable way of living life. Even Phil Johnson, who is the writer and president for the Grace to You Ministries for John MacArthur, he even predicts this resurgence will die back out like it has the last several times hmm. because, and he predicts it will die out because of hyper-Calvinists, that hyper-Calvinism hmm. will drive Calvinism's movement into the ground. And he predicts that. Why? Because it's happened time and time again and because that cycle tends to repeat itself. And that's why I'm pushing back against this to say, I know that many of our Calvinist listeners who would listen to you or listen to my program are not anti-evangelists. Most of you are not. I get that. For sure. But what about your kids and your grandkids' generation? How will the doctrines begin to play out in their hearts and life? I I see the difference between, for example, R.C. Sproul's teaching and R.C. Sproul Jr.'s teaching. R.C. Sproul Jr. has become more hyper a higher form of Calvinism than his father was. Um, And so what's the next generation uh, beyond that going to look like? Because people tend to become more and more consistent within the framework of their philosophical underpinning and their doctrine. And that will have an impact in our world overall. And I think that's really important because I think they're in philosophy in general, uh, which I believe Calvinism is more more of a, a philosophy than it is a, a doctrinal position. That's my my perspective. But I, I think it tends towards exclusivity, right? And so mm. with that with exclusivity, there always is kind of a a, a shrinking of the circle, you know, over time uh, until until it gets very very s- small. Uh, I think yeah. just anything that that is it is. Inclusive tends to grow and expand, which I think the Great Commission and and the gospel message is inclusive. But things that are exclusive, uh, you know, shrink you down until, you know, until you're living in your own little Geneva, if you will, you know, and it's and 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 it refuses everything else. And I, I, I can see what you're saying in terms of the cycle repeating itself. Absolutely. Yeah, you can you can get so um, caught up in all the secondary issues that you you make your circle so small that really, if you're honest with yourself, you don't even fit in your own circle, mm-hmm. um, and and you end up driving anybody and everybody away that that has a, a difference of opinion on various views, um, and that's just destructive to the church and to the Christian movement as a whole, mm-hmm. in my estimation. Mm-hmm. 
So last time uh, we were together, we talked about the, the theology of Calvinism. You introduced us to that. Um, I want to dig a little bit deeper into some of the specifics, and, and many of our listeners are going to be familiar with the, the five doctrinal tenets of, of Calvinism, you know, represented by that acronym TULIP that we talked about uh, last time. Uh, where do these tenets originate? Uh, you know, in, in a for, in a formally speaking, where do they originate? Right. Where, do, where does TULIP come from? Yeah, John John Calvin wrote a book called Tulip. No, actually, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he wrote, you know, the uh, Institutes of Christian Religion, which, by the way, I agree with a lot, most, in fact, of what John Calvin writes in the Institute of Christian Religion. He's a he's a genius. Uh, he wrote m- most of uh, all of his writings before the age of twenty six, and it, I, 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 that just baffles my mind that that a man has that much insight. Uh, and his stuff on prayer is some of the the best stuff I've ever read mm. in my life on prayer. Uh, and so people who think I'm just anti-Calvin and anti-Calvinism and all these kinds of things, I, it, you don't know me very well. I actually appreciate a lot of what Calvin uh, contributed to the church. Um, I, I disagree with him over these specific doctrines of soteriology. And some even argue that some of the doctrines, specifically the L, the limited atonement, were not even held to by Calvin in the strictest sense. He certainly didn't mm-hmm. hold to pre-faith regeneration. He might have held to a, a concept that's similar to that, but he did not use that kind of terminology. That was actually not developed until the Synod of Dort, um, which uh, came later. Beza is the one who followed Calvin, who who solidified more of the the Calvinistic doctrines that we know of today, and um, was really really highlighting those points uh, a lot more. Uh, and Arminius, another student of Geneva. Um, Jacob Sarminius rose up and began to write uh, against some of these points. Again, he was a Calvinist for the most part, believing most of what John Calvin taught, but highlighting some issues and areas of discernment and dif- disagreement mm-hmm. uh, in the way he approached those things. Um, and the remonstrance came from that. These are the followers of the more Armenian way of thinking. And this is, uh, again, shortening a long span of history here in sure. a few moments, but Eventually, the Synod of Dort is when the councils, the churches came together to argue over these particular points of the remonstrance. So the actual points of disagreement were brought by the adversaries of John John Calvin's teaching on soteriology, that these are the points of disagreement. And there were various takes. And even at that council, there was a large number of people who believed more like the Arminians than the Calvinists. But um, this this whole... Uh, council came together and had to come up with statements that were somewhat ecumenical in the sense that they were trying to get a, a balance and agreements uh, and what they were going to anathematize. In other words, cast mm-hmm. out as not being a part of the, the church from that point forward. And all those kinds of things were all discussed during that time. But that, you know, that's relatively a recent time in history, you know, 500 some years ago that, that all of that came to pass. And when you think about it, that's, that's really not that long when it comes to the course of human history right. um, as, as the development of these doctrines. And, uh, and so a lot of people get this idea that, you know, John Calvin came up with Tulip or this actually it's in the, the ni- uh, 20th century, I guess, 1900s, that uh, Lorraine Bettner is the one who really uh, popularized the acrostic Tulip. Uh, as we know mm. it today. And so uh, a lot of people uh, don't know kind of how the, the flow of history yeah. uh, kind of developed. Yeah, that, that, that's good. I think that gives us some insight. Now, I, I, I know that a lot of people, you, you interact with Calvinists, and one of the common things for to hear people say is, you know, I'm a four-point, or I'm a, once you get to the place where you're, you're saying you're a, a three-point, maybe, you know, 
maybe your Calvinism is not as sure as you thought it was. But, but what does that mean, and, and how do the, the different uh, parts of the acronym interact with each other? How do they rely on each other? Yeah. They're a bit of a house of cards in, in some ways, and so maybe you can explain that to us a little bit. Well, even, even men like R.C. Sproul, who are well-respected among Reformed uh, teachers and pastors, said that they all hang or fall together, um, and they all hang or fall upon the T, the foundational point of the tulip systematic is, is the depravity and moral inability of all humanity from birth due to the fall. Um, all of them kind of hang or fall on that doctrine. Um, and Sproul makes that argument in his book, well-known book, Chosen by God, and and I, I actually believe he's right. Um, and so sometimes I get in trouble for teaching what Calvinists teach because uh, I, I try to consistently say, as Sproul argued and many other Calvinists argue, these, these doctrines really do hang or fall together because they're, they're integrated within each other. They're logically connected to each other. Um, and so when somebody says, I'm a two-pointer or I'm a three-pointer, what they mean is I'm, I, I agree with some of what Calvin said with regard to some of those points, but I don't define those points the same way that a true Calvinist would define them, which again is misleading because if you say I hold to, you know, T for example, what, do you hold to the T as defined by Calvinists? Because if you don't, then you shouldn't say you hold to that point because you hold to a qualification. Right. Or do, or do you mean you just believe Romans 512, right? Which I think is a lot of things <laughs> yeah. that people, people, you know, get the, they conflate, you know, what they know in terms of a biblical definition with the very specific claims that are being made within T in, in particular. Well, like, yeah, depravity, for example. You, somebody asked me, do you believe that men are depraved? I, well, absolutely. Everybody sin and falls short of the glory of God, and we're depraved and slaves to sin and dead in our trespasses and sins. I believe all those things. But that doesn't make me a one-point Calvinist because now you adopted the T of Tulip because that's not the way the Calvinist defines the T of, of total right. depravity because they, they go further than to say that we're corpse-like dead sinners that are uh, depraved, and they go beyond that to say that because of that, we can't respond positively to the gospel. We will always hate and reject even the good news of Jesus Christ because of the condition we're born in. And they, they think of dead meaning like you're you're incapable of responding even to the life-giving truth versus dead like the prodigal. You're lost in a far country. You're as good as dead unless you return home, unless you're reconciled, uh, as we talked about in the first episode about the misconception of the idiomatic use of deadness. Um, and so when you understand that from our perspective, you don't even adopt that T. You, you don't fully adopt it, at least. And so right. the, it, it gives a lot of confusion to people when you say you're a two or three point Calvinist, when you're redefining those terms to fit your doctrine. You might as well just say, I'm not a Calvinist because right. you're really not. Yeah. And I think the, pre, I think the prefixing of the, of the qualifying terms that would otherwise be scriptural is, is really interesting in TULIP. So, you know... Election is a biblical idea, but unconditional election as a concept is is not that you know you're you're adding these prefixes to each of these to basically put a spin on what would otherwise be a traditional a, a, a traditional doctrine. Right, and that it can even get confusing because you're saying unconditioned upon what? Because if you're saying unconditioned upon your works, I would say Amen. Salvation, mm -hmm. our election, God's choice of to save us is not conditioned upon our good deeds, mm -hmm. but it is conditioned upon our faith in Jesus. 
So it's not completely unconditional, but it is unconditioned based upon good deeds or good works of righteousness because, uh, and I use the, you know, Matthew 22 parable of the wedding feast. Many are called, but few are chosen. Well, the few who are chosen are chosen. Why? Because they responded to the invitation in faith. They came clothed in the proper wedding garments, which what, what does that signify? Being clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith. So the condition is not their good deeds, because remember, he went to the highways and the byways to the good and the bad alike. So there are yeah. immoral people who are not a part of the nation of, of the king who are coming to the banquet. So it's not conditioned upon their morality or their nationality or their worth. But what is the condition? What's the new condition in, in this parable? Well, the new condition is that you come in response to the invitation, clothed in the right wedding garments. Well, what does that signify? You come clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith. That is yeah. the condition for salvation. Mm -hmm. And so this, this concept of calling it unconditional, you have to kind of say, well, what do you mean by unconditional? Unconditional of what, right. you know, specifically. Right. And that's why it can get nuanced. Yeah. And now in the last episode, you, you did a, a wonderful job. I don't know how you did it. It was like you t introduced us to Tulip in like five minutes, each of the points. I don't know how, I don't know how you managed doing it. It's like you do this all the time or something. <laughs> yeah. But um, we're going to go in depth a little bit here on, on I think, uh, it, it's hard to do this, but go in depth on what I think are the two make or break, the, the most make or break of, of Tulip. Now, I think you could argue that total depravity, you know, the same way that, that you, you mentioned Sproul said that total depravity, you know, is, is absolutely, you know, necessary or whatever. But I think that, I think, when you get down to it, unconditional election is probably best signifies the whole of the position. Um, and, and I also think, like you mentioned in the previous episode, I think limited atonement is unique in that it's a logical conclusion versus a doctrinal conclusion. I think it'd be worth us kind of extrapolating those a little bit, tear, tear those apart and, and, and give them some critique. So can you begin just by introducing us again to unconditional election, what it is, and then uh, maybe sure. explain to us how the, the Calvinist justifies that view. Yeah, unconditional election is the concept that God has chosen unilaterally. It may be a word to use. I, you know, even Jonathan Edwards uses the word arbitrarily. Uh, Calvin actually uses that word too. And they don't mean it like on a whim or without any reason, as sometimes arbitrary is, is denoted. But um, it, it's the concept, concept that God, as the, as the arbiter, the sole arbiter, is making a decision that's not based upon the decision or choices or deeds or anything of anyone else. It's totally and completely unilaterally his choice. And so the, they'll admit they don't know why God chooses one person over another, but they just believe that he does. And you just got to trust that he's, he's, you know, God and he can make the choices that he wants to make. And so he unilaterally or arbitrarily chooses some people before they're ever even created. And so you could actually say he's not just choosing people, he's creating people for either salvation or damnation. And he's ultimately creating some people. Is it sin out of door where they they suggested it was before the, was that where the phrase, the foundation, before the foundation of the earth, is that where that came from? Is that where that was established? Well, no, the, that phrase is Paul's phrase in Ephesians. But Paul's phrase in my interpretation is to say that God has destined beforehand that all who are right. in Christ will be made holy and blameless. And so that that's right. what's happening before the foundation of the world. It's just like Ephesians 3. This has been God's plan from the beginning 
to mm-hmm. establish the Gentiles by grace through faith. In other words, Paul's argument is trying to establish this has always been God's plan from the beginning to that all, whether male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, it doesn't matter your background, it has always been God's plan to redeem people through Christ, that this right. is the destination of those in Christ. So whenever he refers to before the foundation of the world, that's what we believe Paul is getting at. What the Calvinist is reading there is, is of course, their doctrine of election, that God is arbitrarily or unilaterally picking people before the foundation of the world to be believers, like that he's going mm-hmm. to somehow cause them to believe so as to be saved because they believe that that belief is a prerequisite for salvation, but God is the one who's going to infuse faith within the elect. He's going to cause those people to have faith. He's created them for that end, in fact, and he's created thus everyone else for reprobation or damnation. They are going to be born unable to believe the gospel because of the nature they were born with, and they will be judged justly. Somehow it's just. Uh, they I don't. I've not seen a significant or a, a rational reason that you would call somebody justly condemned for something they have absolutely no control over. But that's the claim of Calvinism: is that somehow, mysteriously, they are justly condemned for their sinful nature that they're born with and this desire to, re, you know, re, reject God and His gospel. And um, and and that that's what that's why we push back on this is because. Even Calvinists admit it's it does seem unjust. Even Calvinists admit it's a difficult pill to swallow. Uh, almost every Calvinist, Sproul included, talks about his struggle with this. Piper talks about weeping for three days over these doctrines because they were so dis- it made him so distraught because it's a it's a difficult doctrine to swallow. This concept and idea of this arbitrary choice of God to damn some people before they're ever even born is is difficult to swallow, as you can well imagine. And, and if it's biblical, then we should swallow it because we're Bible people. But if it's not biblical, we shouldn't swallow it. And, and, mm-hmm. and we don't believe it's biblical, which is the reason we're pushing back against it so vehemently to say this is not a biblical concept. Don't swallow that pill because double predestination, reprobation is not a doctrine of the Bible. It's a doctrine of Augustine and Calvin. And that's why, that's why we want people to recognize it as such. One of the things that I think, you know, you mentioned that, that it's hard for people to swallow. It's, it's difficult. And they usually just use the word, well, it's a mystery of God's sovereignty. And they use the phrase sovereignty to kind of overlay and to wash over their concerns um, as it concerns unconditional election. You uh, once upon a time used the analogy of God's sovereignty from a provisionist perspective uh, and, and from a Calvinist perspective in terms of—, of a chess match. I don't know if you remember this analogy. Yeah, of course. But I, but, yeah. but I think I, if you could share that, I, it, this this analogy has always really helped me to understand the nature of God's sovereignty and 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 His justness and His ability right. to remain in control while uh, allowing and permitting free will. Yeah, I think that that um, analogy is in this book, uh, The Potter's Promise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also shared it on the podcast several times because I think it's just a, it gives imagery of the two different views uh, of sovereignty because we we both believe God's sovereign. The question is, what is sovereignty? Um, mm-hmm. and, and we believe that sovereignty is God's right to rule as he pleases. The question is, is does he want to does he want to rule a world uh, of people that he's ultimately controlling by controlling their desires and their, their circumstances in such a way that they couldn't ever do other than what he has decreed for them to do? Or does he want to rule a world 
where people are morally free to make their own choices and thus suffer the consequences due to those choices and 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 to reap the the benefit and reward of the the grace that he's provided for all uh, and you've got to, th- that's the debate. So just saying God is sovereign is is not enough. Both sides believe mm-hmm. God's sovereign. It's what is God sovereignly chosen to do? How is he sovereignly chosen to rule? Um, and the analogy of the chessboard kind of illustrates that. So I, I talk about if I was walking down a boardwalk and I came upon an elderly man playing both sides of the chessboard. He'd get on one side and move the white piece and get up and go to the other side and move the black piece. And you say, sir, what? why are you playing both sides of the chessboard? And he says, well, it's the only way I know how to ensure my victory. Now, are you very impressed by that man? Um, is it something you're going to go home and brag about how awesome this this chess master is? That the only way he can figure out how to win is by controlling both the white and the black pieces on the board. It's the only way he can just fix. It's just the only way he can conceive of doing it. Mm-hmm. Versus, you go down the boardwalk a little ways and you see another chess master standing there on his side of the chessboard, moving the white pieces. And there's a line of chess masters from around the world lined up to take him on. And one by one, he just beats them without any effort. He's just so much better at chess than they are that no matter what free move they make, and they're genuinely free to make any move on that chessboard, that no matter what move they make, he's just better at chess than they are. And that's how he ensures his victory. So, there's both two views of sovereignty um, in the sense that bo- both of them are ensuring their victory. Both of them, their victory is ensured. Their victory is sure. This one's victory is sure because he's controlling both sides of the chessboard. He's controlling both the choices of the good and the evil ones. This side is ensuring his victory because he's just better at chess than all of his opponents. Um, that to me is a much higher view of sovereignty. And that's what we're trying to promote. We're trying to say yeah. the reason that we believe God has ensured his victory is not because he's controlling the evil in this world. It's because he's so much better than the evil in this world and he will prevail. Yeah. And in that view of sovereignty and justice, I think also promotes this idea that, that Christ is still loving, right? Like I think it's really hard for us to reconcile unconditional election alongside uh, the idea that God is all loving and that he 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 cares for souls, and that that he it's his will that none should perish. Like how do you how do you reconcile this idea that it's God's will and desire, not that He's going to 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 force all of mankind to accept Him or receive Him, but it's His will, it's His desire that all men would receive. How do you reconcile those two things? It seems very very difficult to do. Right, I'm sure. Yeah, I think Calvinists probably have their way of of trying to explain those kinds of things, um, and oftentimes it's an emphasis that no one's deserving of salvation, uh, as if we don't agree with that. And of course, we mm-hmm. would say we agree. No one's worthy of salvation. That's why it's all the more gracious that God does provide salvation and the means of salvation for every person, is because no one deserves it. And and uh, and so we we just point to the fact that God wants genuine relationship. I think R.C., excuse me, um, C.S. Lewis's book on the problem of pain touches on the free will doctrine and and gives a really good free will theodicy as to why God would allow suffering and pain. And it it has to do with the fact that he he must allow the freedom of choice for there to be true love and relationship worth having. And if, if that means a world of evil and war and pain and struggle, then it's a price worth paying. He argues, yeah. 
And, and I tend to believe with that rationale is that I think God has a good reason for allowing for free choice. And that has to do with real love and relationship. A yeah. world of automatons would not be worth creating because you would just be kind of a robotic kind of love in, in his estimation and the way he describes it. And, and I tend to agree that even though Calvinists mm-hmm. don't like that analogy of being robotic or like an avatar world or something of that nature, I understand they, they push back against those kinds of uh, critiques. But I, I don't think that they can get away from that critique very well, considering their their perspective. It's real life. I mean, my uh, my nine year old um, couldn't go to sleep the other night. She's smarter than she should be at this age. Uh, so she's she's grieved because she's starting to recognize the need to evangelize at school to her to her classmates. She has a heart for their soul. But she couldn't go to sleep the other night. We, we invited her into our bedroom and my wife and I sat down with her. And the, the issue that my nine-year-old was struggling with was, why wouldn't God just force everyone, knowing that it's best for them, to receive him? Like, Why right. wouldn't God do that? Why, why is it that, that people have to grapple with whether or not he's real and make a decision? And it goes right back to what you're saying and C.S. Lewis was saying is that, that free will, free, free agency, the decision to choose... Uh, is bestowed upon us because he desires worshipers mm. who choose him in return, right? It's, a, it's the greatest act of love is for him actually uh, to give us the opportunity to decide for ourselves mm. what our perspective on the cross really, really is. Mm. And I, I think, so I think what you're talking about is super important. So people can explain things away, you know, they can skirt the issue, but ultimately uh, God might be sovereign, but he's not all loving, unless he gives people the option, the act genuine option uh, to choose him. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's kind of like the passage. It says if they, if they don't cry out in worship, then the rocks will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so God, God can create, a, a, you know, uh, inanimate objects to, you know, praise and worship, but that's not what he desires. Uh, I think he desires real relationship from people who have real ability to love and, and make choices. And that may be beyond our full comprehension. It doesn't mean all the mysteries of life and suffering and struggle are answered. Uh, but both both sides have those kinds of issues. But I, I believe that our theodicy, which theodicy is just another big word for answering the problem of pain and problem of suffering. If God is good, why is there pain and suffering? Theodicy is answering that. I think the free will theodicy is the best theodicy. I don't think the sovereignty... Uh, dec- the sovereign decree theodicy of the Calvinist uh, jibes very good with the scripture at all. Um, and, nor do I think it gives a good rational answer to the problem of evil. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, it's it's interesting, Sproul and others that I've mentioned borrow from the free will theist <laughs> and, and oftentimes use the free will theodicy arguments when debating with atheists, uh, which is interesting to me. Um, it doesn't seem real consistent to me, but nevertheless, you see some of that happen when, when you begin to, to dive into these discussions, because I, I think even they, some of them at least, recognize that the free will theodicy is really the only rationally, biblically-based theodicy that, that's yeah. viable for discussion with those people asking that kind of question. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. I'm Craig Warner. I'm the kids pastor at First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia, Ohio, and a recent graduate of the Living Faith Bible Institute. 
LFBI was a great chance for me to grow, to learn, to continue my education without having to take time away from my family or my own ministry. In fact, being able to take classes at my own pace ultimately allowed me to be more effective in my ministry. I can't tell you how invaluable it is for LFBI to be structured in such a way that you're encouraged to implement what you learn in ministry and not just sit on the information for yourself. It was a great experience to hear from a variety of instructors uh, from other ministries and parts of the country in tandem with serving my local church. Through LFBI, I received a library of resources that I'll be able to reference for the rest of my life. It was curated by the experience and the countless hours of study put in by the instructors. I can't tell you how grateful I am for all those that invested in and equipped me for the work of the Lord. In addition to the information and resources, I was able to develop relationships with so many of the students and the instructors that have impacted my life in the way that I view ministry. There was a lot of info to retain and there's still a lot that I don't know, but perhaps the greatest takeaway from LFBI is the confidence to be able to compare scripture with scripture and rightly divide the word of truth so that I can be certain of what God says for myself. This is an approach to the Bible that will stay with me for the rest of my life. So if anyone's interested in learning what God's word has to say, I'd encourage you to sign up for the Living Faith Bible Institute. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org support. So, you know, we've talked about unconditional election. Is there anything else that you need to throw, you feel like you need to throw in there about that topic? I mean, there's so much to say. I, I really do think it's, it's the one that requires, there's the most to say about it. And I think it's the topic that's been most written upon throughout history too. Sure. Yeah. And they, they definitely uh, flow together. Um, I mean, Every every one of the point has overlap with the other points, and mm -hmm. and when when you begin to study it, you begin to see that overlap, and it begins to make more sense. Yeah. And that's why when you talk to somebody, and it's not to put a slight on them, uh, you know, it's just like a podiatrist talking to somebody who's never done podiatry before, or you know, a cardiologist talking about the heart, you know, and they they're going to know things because they've just they've spent their life studying it this has been my area of study. And so I've studied this so much. I see the intertwined connection between the two of them. They're so integrated with each other mm -hmm. that when people come along who just study it kind of on the side or maybe read a book or two about it over the years, and they, they say, oh, I'm a two or three point Calvinist or yeah, I believe I'm going, ah, yeah, yeah <laughs> I right. love you. I mean, I appreciate what I know what you're saying, but no, you don't, <laughs> you're not a three, you're not a three point anything. Right. Um, because they're, they're too intertwined to, to just, kind of take one and leave the other. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't yeah, work that I way. I agree. So with that overlap in mind, let's overlap into limited atonement and, um, and address what it is, but, but also, you know, look at how, how the, you know, you mentioned in the previous episode that this is almost kind of a conclusion based on logic and rationale. Like if yeah. T and U are true, then L must be true. Uh, can you explain limited atonement versus our perspective on atonement and, uh, and, and maybe... Yeah, the, the, the popularized version is kind of the John Owen version of, of limited atonement. It's not historically the most held to view, even among the Reformed tradition, which David Allen, I think, proves quite uh, conclusively in his work, if you're interested in studying that further. But the, the, the John Owen kind of the dilemma perspective of a, you know, double jeopardy, well, if, if, if Jesus died for the sins of all people, then the people who end up in hell are paying for sins that have already been paid for by Jesus. 
And it's a very commercialized view of the atonement, like like Christ just suffered so much for so many. And I, I even mm. actually recommend reading, you know, the Princeton theologians like Charles Hodge and Dabney and Shedd and others who are Calvinists who debunk that way of thinking about the atonement because the atonement is not commercialized in that sense. And uh, mm. again, I'll, I'll reference a lot of David Allen's work. He, he goes through this, but it's, it's almost like the difference of if we were having a meal together and, you know, we eat the meal and you leave without paying for your meal um, and, and I step up and pay for it, then it's the, the, you know, the restaurant's not coming after you. Okay. Cause you, the debt's been paid. It's, it's taken care of. Right. And some of, and some of them think of this, of atonement that way, like Christ has paid for your check at the register, then everybody should be free. I mean, everybody, you know, is, you know, not going to have a debt now. But that's that's not the way the debt works. It's more like if you went into a bank and you robbed it and you took ten thousand dollars, and I went up to the bank, go, oh wait, wait, wait here, here's the ten thousand dollars. Are they going to stop looking for Brandon? <laughs> no, they're still mm-hmm. going to come after right. you because right. you not only have a debt that you owe of ten thousand dollars, but you've 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 committed a crime. You've broken the law. Yeah, and that's what people don't remember is that you've got a debt that can't be paid. You know, it, it has to be only paid by Christ. And and it's a it's it's a provisional atonement. It's it's like the serpent lifted in the desert. If you look to the heel, the the snake on the pole, you will be healed. You have to look at it in faith. It's provision. You have mm-hmm. to wipe the blood on the doorpost, and then the death angel will pass over. It's a provisional right. atonement. Provided you do this, then your debt will be paid. Um, then you will be healed. Mm-hmm. The same is true of Christ. He's lifted up for the sins of the world. What's the provision? that you look to him in faith. Uh, and if you don't look to him in faith, then you won't uh, receive the benefit of that provision. But the provision is sufficient for all people. It's it's made for all people, and anyone can look to it. Uh, and so, for example, I always use the example of the serpent lifted in the desert because that's the example Jesus used, by the way, in, in John chapter yeah. 3, so yeah. it's a good example. So we would say, okay, let's say a, a Jewish person gets bit by a serpent but he's around the corner. He can't see the pole lifted, and he just thinks to himself, "You know, that's just superstition. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die." And so, you know, God—if God wants to save me, He'll save me. And he dies of snake venom. He gets up to heaven. He goes to God, and he says, "God, why? Why did I mean? Why did you? Why didn't you provide for me? Why? Why didn't you provide healing? What's God going to say? I did. I, I. There was a. There was a serpent on the pole for you to look at. You refused to do that." because you didn't believe in other words, you didn't die for a lack of provision. And so I think that's the important part to say to people, no one perishes for a lack of God's provision. No one goes to hell Mm -hmm. because Jesus didn't die for their sins. Nobody in Israel died of snake venom because God didn't provide a means of healing for them. He did provide a means of healing for them. If they ended up dying for, for snake venom, a bite, that was their fault not a lack right. of provision of God. And that's that's what we're trying to point out. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things you mentioned earlier really speaks to this is this idea that a lot of times you, you might refer to yourself as a whosoever believer, right? Like, right. like is, is, are, are those kinds of statements in Scripture legitimate or do we have to explain them away? Do we have to explain the whosoever, the whomsoever of Scripture? You, I think in your testimony you said you had John 3.16 memorized before you got saved. Yeah. Like are those passages actually relevant 
to our soteriology or the, or are they not? Right? Did no. Christ die for all of mankind the way scripture says it or do we explain that away somehow? Yeah, and oftentimes I'll even point people to John Calvin's own commentary on John 3:16 because he takes a universal approach to that interpretation. Um, it, it was Beza and people following Calvin that actually get more hardcore on the atonement issue than, than Calvin ever was, at least as far as I can tell. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, not that it matters. I mean, Calvin's not our authority. And he, a lot of Calvinists don't even can care what Calvin himself said about it. It's just a, kind of the vernacular. But the, the reason sometimes I point to other Reformed teachers or other Calvinist teachers is to say, see the duck and the rabbit, you know, see both sides of the issue, see both perspectives, that even a reformer, even a Calvinistic person can understand this text differently than the way you've understood it. Uh, you may be out-Calvining John Calvin on this. You may be going further than even a lot of the reformers have gone in your understanding of this verse. Uh, that's one of the reasons I'll quote from Spurgeon, sometimes more to, to support my views than the Calvinist views, because Spurgeon mm -hmm. had a lot of a biblical exegesis that more aligns with my exegesis than the Calvinist exegesis um, because he wasn't a very consistent Calvinist when it comes to some of those things. Uh, and and the, the, the benefit of doing that is just to help people to say, you know, be objective about these things. They're, they're not as cut right. and dry as you might think they are uh, considering the, the differing interpretations that have come, come about over the years. Layton, th there's so much to talk about uh, you know, as it concerns these topics. And this is so good for our listeners, especially those who have not familiarized themselves with your show or your books, your material. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful for your time that you've given us, uh, the clarity in which you describe these issues, but also just the grace that you extend to people who uh, hold a differing uh, view. And uh, and so I'm, I'm really thankful for all of those things. If we do have a, uh, a Calvinist listener, or, or someone who's struggling with this issue. Um, you know, you, you kind of made this, this charge in the previous episode, but I think it's worth maybe re rehashing again. What do you suggest they do if, if someone's grappling, uh, gra grappling with this? Pray about it. Ask God to give discernment. Um, be willing to question your presuppositions. Be willing to back away from what you have presumed to be true about a text and, try, and, and legitimately say, God, Help me to see this from the other side, even if I don't agree with it. I think it was what Aristotle that says it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without necessarily accepting it. Um, you, you don't have to say, I'm going to abandon Calvinism. You, you know, that, that may be threatening to you because Calvinism is your circle or maybe your employer is Calvinistic. And so if you abandon Calvinism, mm. you would be losing your livelihood or whatever it is. Don't, don't, don't threaten yourself with that because that sometimes will keep you from examining honestly and objectively the views that you hold to if you know what the potential outcome is. So don't don't start with that. Just start with saying, I, I want to at least understand why there are well-educated people who believe in, in the authority of Scripture who really do love Jesus. Why are some of them coming to different conclusions than I've come to and really get it? That, that way, mm -hmm. at least if nothing else, some of the the kind of the raging internet Calvinists that are out there can kind of tone down their level of, of, of rancor to say, I understand that that other person out there who disagrees with me, they actually have some really good reasons why they disagree with me. And I don't have to be angry with them. I don't have to try to convince right. them to, you know, I don't have to evangelize people into Calvinism anymore. 
as 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 hardcore as I maybe once was because I can see why they they might not accept it. And and maybe that would be a good goal is that, that you could at least mm-hmm. understand why we disagree with you. And it's not just because we're sneaky snakes that hate the gospel or don't love Jesus or not willing to read Romans 9 or something of that sort. It really is because we we have come to a different conclusion about these these scriptures than you have come to, and and for good reason. And mm-hmm. one of the ways I'll push back my Calvinist friends, especially those who are consistent with their view of God's sovereign decree, is to say, it's either true that I'm right in defense of God's glory and His love, or God has decreed me to be wrong for the praise of His glory. There's there's only two logical options there. Right. And so even even if you're right. You've got to admit that God's decreed me to be wrong, and maybe I'm here to challenge you. Maybe God's decreed me to be what I am, Leighton mm-hmm. Flowers, and to start Soteriology 101, if for no other reason, to just push you to think deeper about these things mm-hmm. than you thought before. And so even if your theology is true, you've got to admit God's decreed me to do what I'm doing for a reason. So maybe it can mm-hmm. benefit you. And so that at least maybe softens the Calvinist to be willing to say, God has a purpose in these discussions. Well, you know, I don't know about the word decreed, uh, Leighton, but I think God has called you for sure to do this work, and we're really grateful for it. Um, before we go, uh, could you just point people to the show? Could you know what if people are looking for the show and, and they're wanting to know what to expect from your format? Uh, maybe explain to us what you're doing on Soteriology 101. Yeah, like I mentioned in the first, epi- the first episode we talked together, I created this kind of as a side thing so that people could have a place uh, to to debate these issues and discuss them. I, don't, I didn't want them to overrun our evangelism ministry and the things we're doing elsewhere. And the reason I wrote the, the book, The Potter's Promise, was to address my own journey in and out of Calvinism. Uh, this book uh, called the, uh, the God's Provision for All is really more of a positive presentation of why we believe what we believe as provisionists. And there at Sociology101.com, you can find a lot of blog articles and, of course, the link to the the, the podcast as well as the YouTube broadcast that we do. Um, and content's going out weekly, and uh, Caleb does a really good job of creating our shorts because a lot of times our discussions are like yours, good hour-long discussions, and not everyone mm-hmm. will stop and listen to an hour-long discussion, but they might listen to a five-minute clip. And so a lot of our right. videos are broken up into five-minute clips about a particular question or topic. So... There's a lot of content available. Uh, you'd be surprised at how much you can talk about with regard to the doctrine of our salvation. Well, one of the things I think you do really well is the, when leading Calvinists come out with content, you take time to explain and walk through it and provide a rebuttal. And I think that that's really important, especially when you know cultural Christianity is so inundated with Calvinist uh, content. And so I think it's really valuable for, for you to say, oh, okay, this YouTube video came out this week. Let's take some time to address it. No one else is doing that. And so I, I really appreciate the fact that you take that approach. Well, thanks. I ho- hopefully it's edifying and helpful, if nothing else. Well, it, it has been for me, and I, and I know for a lot of our listeners. And so, Leighton, thank you so much again for being with us. We appreciate you so much, brother, and we're, we're, we're praying for you and lifting you up. And I know some of the churches in our fellowship are some, supporting you as well and, and the work that you're doing. And so um, we're, we're asking that the Lord would continue to expand your tribe. Thank you, Brandon. Appreciate it. And we want to thank you, uh, the listener, for joining us for another episode of The Postscript. Again, we, we very much recommend to you, if, if this is an issue or a topic that you're interested in, uh, perhaps you have family members who are Calvinists and you want to have a better understanding of what it is that they believe or maybe even how to refute 
uh, some of the things that they're talking about. Soteriology 101 is a podcast that's a, a fantastic resource, uh, as well as Leighton's books, uh, The Potter's Promise and God's Provision for All, both great, great resources to begin with. And so we want to ask that you would, you would consider checking those things out. But if you want it to grow in your faith and, and your knowledge of God's Word at all, and, and you're trying to better understand God's Word for the sake of ministry, uh, maybe you want to be more involved in your church, uh, maybe you want to grow in your ability to lead people and shepherd people God's way, LFBI is a place that we want you to, to check out. So Living Faith Bible Institute, lfbi.org. Uh, visit our website. Consider whether or not uh, you should be taking classes. Um, it's very affordable. $40 a credit hour for our courses which uh, is, is only due to uh, volunteer and donation. And, and so many people work to make sure that this is an affordable education for people. And so uh, just come, come see what we have to offer at Living Faith Bible Institute. But we are so thankful. Anytime you join us for this show, we're, we're so thankful for that. We get such great feedback, uh, so many great responses. And we know uh, that you're going to love these episodes too. If you have an opportunity uh, to, to leave a review for us uh, on our podcast, or if you have an opportunity to share these episodes with friends, we invite you to do that. But we love you. We're grateful for you. And we can't wait to see you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.